0: This podcast is part of the Shareable Podcast Network. Learn more at shareable.fm. You are now listening to the Heroic Council. All right. Well, we get started today. We have a great guest with us today. I'm I'm definitely really excited to get this, this conversation started. So we are joined by Joe Stanach, who is the author of Thursday is... The New Friday, How to Work Fewer Hours, Make More Money, and Spend Time Doing What You Want. It examines how the four-day work week boosts creativity and productivity. Joe has been featured on Forbes, Good Magazine, Smart Passive Income, Income Podcast, which I'm a listener of, I love that show. He is the host of the popular The Practice of the Practice podcast, which is recognized as one of the top 50 podcasts worldwide with over a hundred thousand downloads each month. This is amazing. Bestseller authors, experts, scholars, and business leaders and innovators are featured and interviewed in the 550 plus podcasts he has done over the last six years amazing Joe thank you so much for joining us today did I miss anything that's like amazing yeah, it's so
1: funny because we just passed 650 so I must have wrote that bio like I don't know a handful of weeks ago so <laughs> but no that's amazing I, I'm also the dad of two amazing daughters that are seven and ten so I often have glitter in my hair so <laughs> that's the only thing not in that bio <laughs> so
0: that's the best I love this and like I said Shell and I are really activity. Um, we do a lot of, of work around pre- creativity and productivity and talking about this. So I am really excited to get into this today because you're launching your book, Thursday is the new Friday. So maybe you can tell us just a little bit more about that by starting with, what is the history of the, the seven day week and the, and the four, 40 hour work week? You know, how did that all really get started? And, and I think that's going to set us up great for this current conversation about how is work structured? Like, how did we get to this point with this, this 40 hour work week?
1: Yeah, I think whenever we think about productivity or doing bigger things, we have to understand what right now is immovable and what is movable, and how firm is the structure we currently stand on, and what have we maybe inherited? And it feels really firm, but actually, it might be more shaky than we think. So, I love that you start with the history because uh, to really understand where we are right now, we actually have to go back several thousand years to the Babylonians. So, the Babylonians looked up in the sky. They saw the sun and the moon. They saw the earth that they were standing on. Mercury, Venus, Mars, and Jupiter. So seven major celestial things, and that's why we have the seven-day week. The Babylonians literally just made up the seven-day week. There is nothing in nature that points to seven days. Uh, The months are based on moon cycles, roughly. The year, how much it takes us to go around the sun. A day, how long it takes us to spin. But there's literally nothing in nature that points to seven. And the Babylonians had seven days, whereas the Egyptians had eight days, and the Romans had ten days. Even less than 100 years ago, the Russians tested out a five-day week and so this thing that we think is solid the seven-day week is actually totally made up so let's fast forward to the late 1800s and early 1900s the average person was working 10 to 14 hours a day six to seven days a week so they had a farmer's schedule whether or not they were farmers. Uh, And so life was hard for the average person across the globe at that time. And in 1926, Henry Ford instituted the 40 hour work week at Ford to sell more cars to his own employees. He had this idea that people weren't gonna buy a car to get to work faster, but if they had someplace fun to go on the weekend, they would actually buy a car and it worked. So again, less than a hundred years ago, we get this thing that feels so immovable that it actually is fairly recent in regards to humankind. So then let's fast forward to the 80s and 90s. We start to see the rise of TGIF. Even ABC names their Friday nights TGIF. Um, They have, you know, Urkel, Full House, all of that. It becomes this kind of cultural thing that Fridays are more of a blow-off day. We're going to have casual Fridays. We see the rise of, you know, baby showers and wedding showers, not on the weekend, but actually at the office on Fridays. We do cheesy team-building activities on Fridays and think about our weekends. And over time, we see Fridays start to be more and more... Uh, part of the weekend than the productive part of the week and then the pandemic comes and we see that globally we get to reevaluate this industrialist system that we've been handed the 40-hour workweek that that's the best key performance indicator we have is butts in the chair for 40 hours I don't think so. So now we see this great resignation of people saying, I'm not going to take this anymore. I'm not going to have that be my highest calling to sit in a chair for 40 hours. I'm going to do something better. I'm going to do something different. And people are recognizing now that they're working for industrialists that only care about viewing people as machines instead of actually looking at the potential that they could actually have.
0: Okay. So much there to unpack. We've never talked about the Babylonians on this podcast before. So that's the first. You're that's out. A first You're a, totally a, we, out. we could have a whole episode about that. No, it's really cool, and I I love that. Yeah, that brings me back. It was just like an every night written up. So that's that's really situation around that. Um, I think what's so interesting here, and you mentioned the pandemic. How, how has that really shifted recently? And, and what are what are actually doing to make that really kind of come to? Life? We've There's less rules around work. You've seen that kind of play out more recently. And I argue we've really been moving to a work week for a while. So can can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, and so I think especially knowledge workers, content creators, entrepreneurs, their biggest challenge is not to have some external supervisor give them permission to work a four-day work week. It's themselves. It's all the ideas they have. You know, people like you and me, uh, we enjoy the work we do. I love coming on podcasts. So it's not a matter of oh shoot, I have to go do another podcast. It's oh my gosh, I have millions of ideas. Where do I even start? And how do I set boundaries around those? And, and so we see the emerging research really showing that that old industrialist model of saying, here's the prescription for productivity, the five steps, the seven steps, the nine steps, it's a prescription, you follow it, you're either in or you're out. Or on the other side, we have these woo-woo books that say, make a vision board, manifest it to the universe, and magically you're gonna get a trip to Hawaii. Now, both of those have truths within them, But the new model is actually more of an experimental menu-based model where we look at what the options are, what the science is showing us, and say, what from here are we gonna pick? And then we're gonna try and experiment over time. So to your question, knowledge workers are doing a number of different things. They're taking that neuroscience and saying, we're gonna work fewer hours, but in those fewer hours, we're gonna absolutely kill it. Because instead of doing the old model of we just run full tilt all week, we're burned out, we're maxed out, and then we get to the weekend and it's a reaction to the previous week, instead we're going to flip that. Where we start with slowing down, we say, how do I optimize this coming weekend, whether or not I'm doing a three-day weekend, to actually optimize my brain in preparation for the future week. It's switching to be more intentional and forward thinking rather than reactionary and backward thinking.
2: Is that really ultimately the shift that's happening with this? It's, it's really what I'm hearing about the energy and how you approach it versus, you know, this is what you got to do. You know, like there's more of a, an intention in, in how you are, you know, kind of channeling your energy, right, between the things that you say that you want and what it takes to actually get there.
1: Yeah, and I think that that channeling of your energy and that intention is part of an even broader shift that we're seeing, that shift away from the industrialists where there's a one size fits all, we see everyone as a machine, everyone's the same, we don't value any sense of diversity or the way that people act or react. Uh, That old model we know is dead. And now the emerging model is more of an evolutionary model where businesses are saying, sure, you are hired in this position, but over time you can adapt and change and shift. Um, So even in my own business, uh, we've done this for years where we've really taken an evolutionary approach to how we do our jobs. And so what does that practically look like? Well, every year, multiple times a year, it's not just a part of our culture. um, I ask my staff three questions. The first is, what do you absolutely love doing right now that you just wanna keep doing? Second, what do you hate doing that you wanna take off your plate, we need to hire someone else for that you can just not do anymore? And then third, where are areas that you want to grow and experiment to maybe Add value to your position. And so, what happens over time is we have someone like my chief marketing officer, Sam, who started out as just a graphic designer for social media posts. And then she became full time with that. Then we built out a magazine. Then she said, I don't really want to do show notes for the podcast anymore. I find them super boring. So, then she found someone and hired them and trained them and made sure that that handoff was strong. And then she wanted to learn about video editing. And then she realized we had great videos, but not many people were watching it. So, she went through a whole YouTube marketing course. And so, she's now created the exact job that she wants within practice of the practice and she knows that if in two years she's bored of that that as long as it's within our general mission then she can adapt and change her job. And so over time, my company starts to transform and evolve, but then the people as well do. And so that shift gives so much more power back to the people that are within the positions to say, you know what, I've outgrown this position, and here's what I wanna create moving forward. Um, And then it allows you as a business owner to adapt and change with your audience and with your staff as well.
2: I love that. And you know, change is not easy. So I'm curious, even with your staff and other people that have been embracing this message, what sort of resistance is there, right, for those that are considering this? What are you, what are you saying? Yeah, I think there's a
1: number of different factors. The first one is that that old model of this much time equals this much pre- productivity, people still buy into. They think if I cut 20% of the week, that I'm going to cut 20% of the productivity, 20% of the profits. We're just not seeing that in the research. Iceland did a huge study that just came out about a month ago. Uh, was a multi-year study, uh, across multiple domains, jobs, and occupations of about 2,500 people. And they found that by having the four day work week, 32 hours, not 40 crammed into four. 32 hours was actually more productive than a 40 hour week. Meaning those last eight hours of work was a hobby. I mean, it sent you backward in your productivity. They also found that happiness went up, health outcomes went up. Uh, And so we're seeing in case studies and in the research um, that that, kind of thought that, hey, if we go down by 20% in our time, we're actually going to go down 20% in our company. just doesn't hold water anymore. Um, And we're seeing this in very traditional companies as well. Um, Kalamazoo Valley Community College in Southwest Michigan, a number of years ago, uh, an HVAC instructor named Ted Forrester started running the numbers in the summertime and noticed there were no students on campus on Fridays. It was so lean. there's hardly anybody there. He went up on the roof every single Friday and took pictures of the empty parking lot while they were air conditioning all of these buildings. And so he presented to the board that fall and just said, here's what Fridays look like here. And here's what the AC costs are for a summer of empty buildings with AC costs. And the next summer, they switched to a four-day work week. Now, some unintended positive consequences were that their staff are staying there longer. Like, who wants to leave, especially in Michigan, where we have like 10 months of snow? Uh, you know, you're not going to leave this job to go somewhere else and make a lateral move when you have a four day week in the summer. Uh, their healthcare costs are better um, because people are more chilled out from the summertime. The student outcomes are better because they can come in earlier and stay a little bit later. And then they've saved over $2.5 million in just air conditioning costs. And so we're seeing that these creative thinkers are also retaining their staff longer, um, which is going to to save on so many other costs, and so that myth that you're going to drop twenty percent by changing the amount of time is, I'd say, the first big pushback uh, that we really see with with different companies and kind of industrialist thinking people.
0: It's so interesting, and I think what's what's one of the keys that you said is they did it in the summer, and so often we feel like we're making a decision, and it's it's all or nothing, right? It's black or white. If we go to this four four day week, that's for the rest of time but we really could do this as a trial we could do this for december we could do this for next summer and i think that's a really important message you can you can test this out and really get some some data to prove this point
1: yeah. And I think that's one of the big shifts that we're seeing is those leaders and those businesses that say, let's experiment with this. Let's have two different teams, one that has a four-day work week and one that has a five. Let's set some clear KPIs between the two teams of what are the key performance indicators of how we judge these teams' success already outside of this experiment. Is it sales? Is it customer satisfaction? What is it? And then let's do a two to three month study to just see how it goes. Now you know that those four day work week people are gonna bust it, trying to Really make sure that they get to keep that four-day work week, um, and, and we're seeing this happen over and over. Um, I have a recent Harvard Business Review article for employees of how do you go to your boss and ask them for the four-day work week because this is a conversation more and more people are wanting to have if they're in a traditional job. And again, it's that experimental mindset of we're gonna give this a whirl, we're gonna watch the numbers, we're gonna do 360 reviews. When we see the KPIs go down, we're gonna address those on a weekly basis. When they go up, we're gonna sustain that on a weekly basis so that over time we get smarter and we learn and we grow just like that whole menu idea that we're experimenting and then saying, okay, this worked really well. This didn't. In our industry, this thing Joe said, it's terrible. It doesn't work at all. Great. I'm glad you learned from it. Now let's adapt and change over time and use the other principles that we know work and try those out on the menu as well.
0: It's really cool. I know in the book, you discuss internal inclinations. Take us through those if you don't mind.
1: Yeah, so there's three internal inclinations that the research points to that top leaders and businesses have. And so we want to just start with these are inclinations, so they're naturally occurring in these leaders. But that doesn't mean if when you take the assessment that's in the book, you don't have it, that all of a sudden you're not going to be a good leader. It just means we want to know what your baseline is. And then we want to say, okay, this area, it's tough for you. Here's some ways to develop that muscle so that you do have that be more of a habit and inclination. So the first one is curiosity. Uh, The second one is an outsider perspective. And the third one is an ability to move on it. So let's start with curiosity. Um, You know, the other day, so I have a seven and 10-year-old daughters uh, and my nieces who live in our same neighborhood came over. So I had a a three-year-old, five-year-old, seven-year-old and 10-year-old girls all in the same backyard playing together. And they're squealing and jumping around. And I'm inside, my sister's off running errands, you know, and just dropped off her kids. And all of a sudden it gets super quiet. I'm like, okay, I need to go outside. Something's going on. Cause you know, four girls like that age, like barely there's a decimal stops level there. Minute. Yeah. yeah, it's just baseline. So I go outside and they're all standing around this dead mouse. And I hear them talking and they say, Oh, that's so gross. Like, should we touch it? Should we poke it? Ooh, I wonder how it died. Do you think owls eat dead mice or do they only eat live mice? Should we bury it? Should we get do mice have funerals? Should mice have a funeral? We should do a funeral for like it's just this ridiculous conversation that any kid would have in that situation. So we are naturally curious as kids, we're seeing things for the first time. Is this this is the first rainbow I've seen. This is the first car accident I've seen. This is the first time a close friend has rejected me publicly. And we're constantly trying to figure out, is this just how life is or is this kind of an outlier? And so we're curious, we're, we're dodging, we're wondering all these different things. But as adults, a lot of times we think we have it figured out. But top leaders keep that curiosity. So maybe they do a giant Facebook ads campaign. They stretch their budget as much as they ever have. And they get a lot of impressions, but no click throughs. And they spent all this money. And to most people, that would be a failure. But top leaders approach that with curiosity and say, okay, we have learned a lot about what our audience doesn't want, that they don't react. We've learned that this copy is really bad and needs to change. We have got a lot of data that we wouldn't have got had we not run this. So top leaders maintain that curiosity. The second one is an outsider's perspective. And so we know that outsiders statistically have more influence over a group than the insiders within a group. Uh, There was this study where they brought together six to eight people and they would hold up a color, either blue or green. And they were usually somewhere in the middle. They weren't super blue or super green. And they would say, is this blue, is this green? And the people at the table would say it, and they mostly agreed. Then with the second version of the study, they did the same thing, but a quarter of the participants were working with the research study. And so they would hold up the blue and occasionally they would say that it was green or when it was green, they would say it's blue. And so they would just say it and they would sway the group. The group would say, oh, I guess that is blue now that I look at it. And They found in study after study, that outsiders actually have the ability to sway an inside group. And, and, you know, we see this all the time. If you ever have had a new job, you come in, they teach you all the systems. And then you say, wait, why do you do it that way? That seems super. Like a weird workflow. Uh, I remember I worked at a community college and they were still in 2010 handwriting their counseling progress notes and then filing them in binders by the date the people came in for counseling, not by their last name. I'm like, has this person ever come before? And they're like, I don't know. I have to look at all these past calendars to find out which day they came in. I'm just like, What are you talking about? And so these outsiders oftentimes have bigger sway and new eyes in a way that they can actually help the company move forward. And then the last internal inclination is the ability to move on it. So if we think of a spectrum on one side, we have uh, the, the perfection or the accuracy. And on the other side, we have speed. And there's a handful of places that I want someone to be accurate all the time. So if I go in for surgery, I want my doctor, I want her to do as great a job as she can do. I want her to take all the time she needs. Speed does not matter. Same with someone that's landing a plane in a windstorm. Take all the time you need to get us safely down there. But most of what we do in business does not need that level of accuracy. We're often paralyzed by perfection and we don't get things done. And so if we focus more on speed, we get that feedback loop back and forth so that then we get better business and better outcomes.
2: That's awesome. And you Amazing. said like these are these are you said these are naturally occurring characteristics in entrepreneurs and, and leaders. Um but it makes me wonder, too, like, do we naturally have, everybody has these things, or are they just, I don't know, it's probably a, a deeper question, but if it's yes. like, we all have this, or, you know, or, or if... Uh... something that you continually work at, you know, kind of a thing. Well,
1: I mean, there's so many factors too. I mean, you think about your family of origin, like were you taught to take risks or were you taught to be safe? And depending on where you were raised, your income level, you were raised, the other people you were being raised with, all these things play in. And that's why there's a whole assessment that we have in the book so that you can figure out, okay, this isn't naturally occurring in me. I don't naturally have an outsider perspective. Here's a whole list of things that you can do to make yourself feel different to feel like an outsider to put yourself in in situations where you realize that maybe you're not the majority that you allow yourself to feel really dumb in front of other people so for me you know several years ago that was joining an improv troupe, and so to even just be able to like go to improv and learn that skill and feel really bad at it at times and to fail publicly and to learn to do that over and over I didn't do it to help my business skills. I did it just because I wanted to laugh more. But the unintended consequences, I've learned a ton of skills that then apply and help me take life a little bit lighter than maybe I would have. And there's tons of different things like that in the book that we talk through that if you realize, hey, I I don't tend to move on it. I tend to be paralyzed by perfection. Okay, what can we do to help you take more risks and to move through things and to shorten up the amount of time that you're going to allow yourself to overthink something?
0: And Joe, do you find that people just naturally, you know, kind of back to that 40 hour week, like, do you think people just naturally fill that in? You know, like we, we, we allow ourselves to take longer because we have the time. I often joke, you know, when you have someone coming my husband will call me and say, somebody's coming over in 15 minutes. Right. And I can get the, I mean, our house is usually pretty much in order, but right I'll get dishes done. I'll get the pillows fluffed. I mean, the house will look spectacular if I have 15 minutes to do it. If I had the whole Saturday to do it, well, you know, it takes a lot longer. So do you find that that's what's happening? We're, we're sort of filling the time just because we have it.
1: Yeah, I mean you're not going to spend if you have 15 minutes and people are coming over, 15 minutes cleaning the toilet so that it's sparkling. You're going to do the top level things. And in the same way in our businesses, if you give yourself less time, if you give yourself 4 days to do 5 days worth of work, are you going to do your best 15 items or your worst 15? You're going to do your best 15, and then you're going to preserve that energy. And over time, you're going to drop the ball. And that's what I think a lot of us high achiever entrepreneur types fear is like somehow our ego is wrapped up in us dropping the ball and, oh, I feel so bad that I did that. But the reality is it's not that we want to check things off the list. We want to do the top level things. And so if I find week after week, I don't take the trash out from my office and I don't vacuum it and that there's other things that I don't do. That gives me some very important data that that is not a top level thing that maybe i need to figure something out that i can do to make sure that the trash gets taken out in the vacuum. maybe i outsource that maybe i pay my kids to do it there's a million different ways that we can do these things but when you then preserve your energy for only that top level thing that then starts to perpetuate itself where that boundary feels more normal than the breaking of that boundary to go back to 40 hours or for me to work on a friday like that feels abnormal to me at this point that I just can't do it. Or even, you know, I have this big interview that's supposed to be this coming Friday. I got news from the, the school that my daughter's jogathon, where they run in a circle for 20 minutes and they've raised money is at the exact time as this really big interview. It wasn't even a decision for me because the habit for me is first and foremost, my daughters are going to be who I pay attention to. And so, if that one media appearance is going to make or break my career, well, sorry, I'd rather be a good dad. And so, that would have felt more abnormal for me to go do that media interview um, and to miss my, my daughter's jogathon
0: obviously, and you mentioned it, right? There's a lot of emotions that come with this. I I feel like a bad entrepreneur because I didn't do something. I feel like I should have done something. I mean, these are, partial and I have talked about these topics a lot before, but how do you help people overcome that? Like I should have, and those feelings that they're having about that, you know, we're essentially talking about eight hours here, but there's a lot of emotion that comes with that.
1: Yeah. It doesn't hurt that I'm trained as a psychologist. So that definitely helps with uh, working with people. Uh, I mean, I think that one thing we, we've done is we've overvalued work, <laughs> excuse me, we've overvalued work and we've undervalued fun. And so to be able to think through what are some things that we can put in our schedule that actually lights us up and to test that out, that's one thing that we can start with. Excuse me, had a little cough there from my water. <laughs> so... um So when we do that, what we're actually doing is we're blocking in things that we know might give us life. And so oftentimes what I suggest to people is let's just add one thing and remove one thing from your weekend. Whether or not you have a three-day weekend, let's just start with what's one thing we can add to this coming weekend that is probably going to give you more life. Maybe there's a novel that has nothing to do with business or productivity that's been on your nightstand for months. Maybe giving yourself two hours to read that and drink a cup of green tea would just totally light you up maybe going for a hike by yourself away from your kids, or maybe getting coffee with a friend. That's something that's gonna really add some life so that we're being intentional going into that weekend. And then we wanna remove something. So maybe you do have coffee plans with a friend, but every time you leave coffee with that person, you feel like trash, you're like, this is a toxic friend. You're allowed to cancel that and not hang out with toxic people. Uh, You're allowed to outsource things like your lawn or other things. So when you start to do that, you then realize, okay, there's all these things that make me feel better. And so I had mentioned improv. That's a non-negotiable for Wednesday nights. I always do it. My parents watch the kids, I go do improv. So scheduling those things in helps entrepreneurs to see that they're more than just their work. I think secondly, looking at how we've inappropriately overvalued our work. So we often use terms like, oh, it's my baby, I've fostered it, I birthed this business. Now you would never leave your child in an alley and abandon it and kill it. But there are businesses and business ideas that you need to kill that you need to like just totally get rid of it. And so if this is your baby, you're going to inappropriately keep working on this business when really you should kill it. Or maybe there's parts of it that you should say, okay, this idea, I thought it was a great idea, but it's not. I've put in too much time and money and it's just not clicking with people. I'm going to cut that out. We would never do that to our children. So even the way we talk about our businesses is, is totally wrong. And then lastly, I would say that that hustle culture. It just pushes us in so many ways where we see on social media, you know, people like Gary Vaynerchuk who say, you know, I've worked every Saturday since I was 14. Now for Gary Vee and his brand, like, I don't know him as a person, but that's not healthy. Uh, that to me points to that somebody, if they're working 60 hours a week, they're bad at business. I don't want to follow that person. I want the person that's been able to bring it down and say, hey, I built out a whole team. I work a handful of days a month or whatever their thing is. And so becoming a better business person, when we realize it's actually you working less, creating a team that automates the income and you stepping back, that's when we start to really see the, the next level start to occur.
2: I think that's huge. I mean, it's especially like a drop incorporating- drop a yeah.
0: like moment. It's awesome. <laughs> I'm telling
2: well, you, but a key point that you mentioned there is other people and getting other people involved in whatever extent that means. So, like you said on Wednesdays, your parents watch the kids. It's like you kind of have uh, almost like this accountability around you as well. And I found that in my own productivity that it is increased when I it was as simple as adding an email invite and having someone else on that time with me um, made a difference for me. But I know that's different for different people as well in terms of motivating factors and things that make it uh, easier to show up. Like I have to have a trainer at the gym, just mm-hmm. having a gym membership doesn't do it for me. Like I'm not gonna go. <laughs> like I really have to force myself, but, um, but yeah, I'm curious, like what other elements like come into play that make it simpler to to stick to what you said you are gonna do, right? Cause ultimately that's yeah. kind of the point, yeah.
1: Yeah, when I look at my schedule for work, when I'm on in work mode, I wanna absolutely kill it because every minute that I'm not working on my business, that I'm dinking around looking at YouTube, that's minutes that I'm stealing from my kids, from myself, from my friends, from just like straightening up my house and making it feel more comfortable for my family. So every minute that I'm not doing what I should be doing, I see that as stealing it from my family. So then when I look at my calendar for a day, every minute is assigned. And so if I have a 15 minute block, I'm going to put in there what I'm going to do. So it could be check email. It could be other high level tasks and making sure that they're high level. So even when I'm checking email, my assistant has already gone through the 200 plus emails we get a day. She's responded to the majority of them. And then the top five or 10 are starred. And the ones that are super high level, she'll text me about. So she'll tell me if my attorney has sent me an email. She'll tell me if my accountant has sent an email. If one of my highest level consulting clients emails me, she says, This person's emailed you. Make sure you check that first. So then, All emails are not created equal. Like if I get an email from the Today Show inviting me to come tomorrow, that shouldn't be the same as if just someone's letting me know something's going on in the business. And so even how we approach things, we need to make sure we're figuring out where is the single best use of our time. So I would say our schedules is one thing. Second thing that we're learning from the neuroscience is the more that you can have your environment match the task. So while I was writing Thursday is the new Friday, uh, I would protect my brain on those mornings that I was writing. I would get everything together, like my my green tea, my smoothie. I'd have my coffee. I'm ready to go. And then I would change my environment in my home office. So the lighting was different. The chair that I wrote in, I moved to the other side of the, the room. I put on uh, headphones that I only wore when I was writing and listened to a playlist I only listened to while I was writing. And so by doing all those things, it helped me bounce into flow states so much faster than if I just showed up and was like, all right, I'm gonna write. Like I don't need to do writing activities because my brain is already primed to jump in and start writing. And so if we can start to pair our actual environment with different tasks that help us, us jump in faster. So for even this shirt that I'm wearing right now, I have two of these so that I can always have a clean one for every single interview. This is my interview shirt that tells my brain we're about to rock out an interview. And it's the one that I've used in my headshots. It's my favorite shirt. So I just make sure that, okay, this is gonna be my interview shirt. So even if I'm doing just a radio interview, I have on this shirt so that I can get into that interview state. So using the neuroscience to actually help us get more done during the same period of time is one of those last steps uh, after we've slowed down.
0: I think that's amazing, and and you mentioned, to that neuroscience, and there's a lot of case studies in the book, I know, that point to slowing down and unlocking hidden creativity and productivity why is this and and are there other other examples of that i love the example you just gave do you do you have any others because that's so powerful for people and what you mentioned is getting into that right headspace you know i often think about how how much effort does it take for a plane to take off it's the same effort if that planes going to philly or if it's going or like like philly to new york or philly to paris right that ramp up period is the same so getting into that state quickly every time you need to do that activity is huge. Do you have any other examples? It's really powerful.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll tell you some more about the neuroscience, but I wanna share a story that I think will exemplify all of it. So when I was in Nepal in 2001, um, it was between my undergraduate work and my graduate work. I went went there with my friend, Todd. So we're in the Chitwan jungle at the edge of it. And our guide says to us, if we get chased by a wild rhinoceros, make sure you run up a tree. And I should have asked a (laughs) follow-up question or two. but I didn't. <laughs> She's like, what kind of trees? How long does this, how long does this happen? Uh, can we give it a little practice? Give it a whirl? Um, no, none of that. So we go into the jungle. We're going through. It's like an hour in. It starts to feel this whole, like this rhino story was just to get us excited about the jungle more than that we're actually going to see a rhino. And then we see a wild rhino right there, uh, probably 15 yards away. So I pull up my camera. It wasn't a digital one yet. It was a film one. So I take a picture and don't know how it turned out and zzz, zzz, zzz. So, I take a step forward to take another picture because I don't know if it turned out like a big blob or it looks like a rhino. So, I take another picture, at which point I should have been satisfied, but I was not because I'm Joe Sanok. So, I took another step forward and the rhino charged us. So, I take off running, blatantly disregarding what the guide had told us earlier because I know I can outrun my friend Todd for about a hundred yards because I had been a sprinter and he was long distance back in high school. And there's two Peace Corps volunteers that are human shields behind him. So we just all take off running until we don't hear this rhino behind us. And then we come back and our guide comes down the tree and yells at us, why didn't you go up a tree? So why didn't I go up a tree? You know, when you're being chased by a rhino, you don't try something new. You don't say I'm going to get creative right now. You take off running. So you survive. And I knew I could outrun at least one, if not more of the people that were in my group, I don't try something new when there's a rhino. And that same thing is true in our businesses. We have rhinos chasing us all the time. But our brains don't realize the difference between the rhinos of our business and the actual rhinos of Nepal. And so we're not going to try new things. And so if we don't slow down enough to get out of that fight, flight, or freeze, we're not going to be able to get to that higher level thinking. We'll remain in that stress and cortisol and all the amped upness. And so when we see the level of hormones that go through us, when we aren't doing efficient work, when we don't slow down, when we go into our weekends and we've got soccer practice for the kids, and then we've got this other obligation and this and this, and we realize work feels like it's a break from my family. Like that should be an indicator to us that we are not prepping our brains to actually do the best work during the week. Instead, we're going to be getting chased by a rhino all week and just go with what we know. So that creativity is not going to come out.
0: That's, that's quite a story.
2: <laughs> Glad you're still with us. Yeah. <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> Next time up the tree. How was the picture? Did the picture turn out?
1: It did turn out. Oh, I have it somewhere. Yeah. it's. I used it in my TED talk.
2: <laughs> wow. That's incredible.
0: <laughs> that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so, and I think you, oh, go ahead, Virgil.
2: Now I was going to ask, I mean, I know that also when you talk about getting out of that flight, fight or flight uh, response and being in that state all the time, um, you know, one of the things I'm a big proponent of is meditation and other ways just to kind of see something different. So how do you you know, advise, you know, when people are looking to make those changes and kind of st- take a step back, uh, things that they can use or utilize as tools or techniques.
1: Yeah. I think for me personally, I love meditation. Actually, I had a break in my schedule right before this and went and meditated for a period of time after lunch. Uh, but I, I, again, it's that kind of experimenting for you, what works. So for me, I found that planking is a really good thing for me and doing some push-ups because I don't want to set up a TRX. I don't want to go across to a gym. I don't want to have to schedule in working with someone, but can I do a you know two to four minute plank every day? Yes, I can make time for that sort of thing. Whereas you know other people like yourself may say I've got to go you know work with a trainer. So experimenting with what for us helps us reset is so important. I mean I would say there's certain domains we want to look at. So sleep, you probably want to get at least seven and a half hours of sleep most nights. You probably want to stop having caffeine after two or three in the afternoon. Uh, you probably want to have some good nutrients in your body to fuel yourself. There's some basic kind of core nutritional things that are really good for most people and for their brains. Uh, We also want to experiment with socialization, being able to say yes and to say no with the amount of socialization you want. A lot of people just, if they get invited to something, they just say, yeah, I'll feel guilty if I'm not there. I'll feel like, oh, I'm missing out with that group of friends or they'll never invite me again. Are you kidding me? No, they invited you now. If you just say, you know what, I've had a really busy week. I need some introvert time. Hopefully they're good enough friends to say, good job. I'm proud of you. <laughs> Go do that. Uh, and so looking at this kind of socialization, um, looking at our own achievement and saying, when can we bookend the week and say, enough is enough. I've done a great job this week. I still have more to do, but I'm going to save that for next week. Um, Giving yourself permission to turn it off and then letting the family members around you know that you're done. Uh, You know, my girls know that if this door is shut in my office, Do not knock on that door unless you're bleeding. Uh, Daddy is in here doing work and he needs to focus on that. But then when I'm done, I'm like, daddy's home from work. And they run and they give me hugs and it's like, hey. And so there's a very clear end. And if I'm on my phone, even texting a friend, they'll be like, you're not working, are you? No, I'm not. But we've got some accountability there too, where I've invited them in so they know, okay, dad's not working right now. I'm not going to accidentally get in trouble for, for interrupting his email or something like that.
0: Um, and that you might be hinting at it a little bit here, but I know you outline sprint types in the book. You know, will you walk us through those? We've got a, a few minutes left, but I think those sound really exciting. I'd love to learn more about those.
1: Yeah, so similar to personality types, we're finding that uh, there's actually sprint types as well. And there's two different areas that we think about. And the first is um, what type of work we're doing, and the second is when we do that work. So when we think about what type of work we're doing, uh, there's first kind of the traditional time block sprinter. So the, the time block sprinter is someone who's gonna do one type of work over usually one to four hour period of time, broken up into 20 to 30 minute segments. So it might be, I'm going to do podcast interview after podcast interview, or if you're doing your own show notes, I'm going to do four or five episodes of show notes all at once and get it all done all at once. Whereas a task switch sprinter is somebody that they need variety. And so they say to themselves, okay, I'm going to do a 20 minute sprint around recording a solo show for the podcast. Then I'm going to work on the show notes. Then I'm going to check my email. Then I'm going to work on trying to get big media appearances. So it's still all things pointing to something bigger, but there's more variety in there. It's not multitasking because we know that that's a myth, um, but it's intentionally saying for this 20 to 30 minutes, here's exactly what I'm going to do to totally kill it. So first we figure that out. Then we figure out when we're going to actually do this. And so for an automated sprinter, an automated sprinter is someone that needs it in their calendar every single week and have it repeat. So for me, I wrote Thursday as the new Friday, every Thursday from April, 2020 until September, 2020. And so that was just in my calendar even if somebody's scheduled in my calendar, I would no show on them. I I would be like, I don't know how you got in there. Um, It's not a time that I'm meeting with anybody. Like that's an accident, my assistant can reschedule you. And so I just knew that that's when I would be writing. Whereas other people, they need to have what's called an intensive sprinter. So they need to go away for an intensive, get an Airbnb, uh, get a hotel room, go to a friend's house, uh, go somewhere away from your own house or business to really focus in. So Dr. Jeremy Sharp from the testing psychologist, he's the one that really Really told me about his approach, and it comes to light in the book. So he goes away several times a year to an Airbnb. He looks for a place that's walking distance to a vegan restaurant. It needs to have an outdoor space as well. But then he brings a bunch of different types of work with him. So he's a task switcher there. So he'll do his content calendar for the year. He'll record some podcasts. He'll work on his books for his counseling practice. And he gets a lot done in those three days. Then he comes home and doesn't have to worry about those things. So figuring out your sprint type then allows you to get more done. Because in the past, a lot of people would be like, oh, I tried sprinting. I tried batching. It just didn't work for me. And then they give up on sprinting. But the reality was they just didn't find their sprint type and that's the the key important part uh to actually get more done during those periods of time
0: it's really cool and i think what you're what you're really referencing too is you know brain types and i think people get so stuck on this is the one way that this guru told me to do this thing it, it's just it's just not all or nothing it doesn't work for everyone the same way you know part we all have very different brains and Parshall and I can both be successful and have the same outcome on the same task. but Maybe we approached it really differently. And I think that's what's important for people to remember. You know, reading a book like Joe's, it's like, take those pieces that really work for you and try them and and iterate on that and see what really works, works for you. Has that been your experience as well? Yeah,
1: I, th- I think that even just working with some of my consulting clients to say, let's try this for a period of time. And then we can say, what data did we get from it? Oh, this really worked. This really didn't work. Where did you resonate with things? Let's try some things in regards to what kind of clients you wanna work with. Uh, let's try some things in regards to how you wanna speak publicly. Do you wanna do podcasts? Do you wanna uh, just you know do a whole bunch of LinkedIn articles? What, what resonates with you? And over time, you then get smarter and smarter in regards to what your individual path is. Um, to me, I believe that there are so many different ways that people can make money. There's no reason to not do it in a way that you absolutely love,
2: and so let's figure that out.
0: I love it. I love
2: that. I love and I mean, as and as you're navigating people to figure it out, a um, quick question that came to mind is like, how do you know, right? What are the 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 key indicators, if you will, that say, yeah, this is definitely working for you. Keep doing this, because I think sometimes people are just not aware. It's like something may be working, but they they don't know that it's working as something to continue to build on and make better. Yeah, I think there, there's this myth that we're going to at some point feel like we're all grown
1: up, you know, I mean, like that we're going to know exactly, okay, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. That's the old industrialist model where you go get a job and then you retire with a pension. Uh, that is not the world we live in anymore. In three years, I may find something way more interesting or I may go down some path and be like, how did I become an expert in this area? I guess this is going to be my career now if I want it to be. And so that I, that iterative, iterative process of saying, I'm going to refine every single year, and that's not going to end. Uh, I'm going to keep adding things in and subtracting things out. And who I look like a year from now, five years, 10 years is going to be completely different. And it's going to be a natural trajectory when you look at, wow, like there was a step at each of these kind of steps that Joe took where he made
2: decisions that make sense and look at where he ended up 10 years later. I love that, and and thinking too, my last quick question, and I'll turn it over to Sarah to close us out, is I know you have your your two daughters, seven and ten, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
2: So so looking at the future for them, right, when they're you know of age to work for themselves or do whatever it is they're gonna do, I don't know. Do you think that Wednesday or Tuesday will be the next Friday? <laughs> or, uh-huh. not, like, what do you yeah. see as the future and how we're able to be that much more focused and intentional with what we do, and you know when it comes to work?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you bring this up because I think it also takes us back to the boundaries discussion. So one thing when I'm asked specifically around parenting of like, how do you apply this to your family is I think through when they leave childhood what are the maybe three things that I want them to leave childhood with that they just know inside and out? I mean, first and foremost, two girls, I want them to understand that their body is their body and that consent is an expectation. And so that's going to then inform my current behavior. But just the other morning right before school, my seven-year-old, I was like, can I have a hug? She's like, I don't, my body doesn't want a hug right now. I'm like, Oh my gosh. Like, I'm so proud of you. And I'm so hurt right now. But if I want them to understand consent and that, a man or a person can't just push their agenda on them that means i got to live that every single day same sort of thing when they leave childhood i want them to be able to have conversations with anybody if you look at successful people it's people who can have conversations sure they need to know math they need to learn english they have to have basic types of you know skills to email people but having a good conversation with someone that's going to take them anywhere and so teaching good conversations, exposing them to people that are different than them. When adults come over to not be like, go play, just say, Hey, let's talk to Paul and Diane for a little bit. Like even just the other night, my friends, Paul and Diane were over and Lucia, my 10 year old, um, sat down at the island at the kitchen. She's like, so how's your week been? And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is incredible. And, And so when we start with, where do we want our kids to be? To me, I'm prepping my kids for jobs or careers that have not yet been invented. You know, podcasting wasn't invented in the 80s. I mean, sure, there was talk radio, but we are doing something that's a job that wasn't invented when we were in school. And so how do we best prep our kids to be able to think differently? To me, is actually the global question of where we're headed right now. Like, we're the post-pandemic generation that lived through something humanity really hasn't been through in a really long time. If we look back to 2019, is that the best we can do? Is that like the best health outcomes, best business outcomes pre-pandemic, or... Can we say we've got a lot of challenges coming up right now? We've got uh, you know, global warming. We have um, huge um, social justice issues going on. We've got many more pandemics probably coming as well. Do we want a burned out generation? Or do we want to maybe have the most creative and productive generation working less so that they can thoughtfully address the huge things ahead of us? So when I think about my daughters, those are the things I think about in prepping them for the future.
0: amazing that's a that's a great way to end i love that so we always wrap up our episodes with what are you into right now so joe i'll give you a second to think about that and this can be anything but parshall what are you into right now
2: oh my gosh um i am into right now it's a book i'm reading it's a wayne dyer book um called real magic so i'm just like super into that and being intentional about you know reading about 20 minutes morning and evening on it to really soak it in. So I'm totally into anything dealing with like, I don't know, just sp- our spiritual side, of course, and um, ways that we can grow and create real magic, right? It comes from a different place and not what we currently see as the external things to try and fix something else that could uh, is much deeper to get into. So I'm totally into that right now and digging that. So that's me.
0: Okay, cool. Joe, what about you?
1: Yeah, I would say Michael Singer's work right now, The Untethered Soul, Living from a Place of Surrender. Uh, He has a new uh, podcast that just came out. Um, And very similar to what Parshall said, uh, that inner work of uh, just meditation and to to me, the way Michael Singer frames it is, I just really resonate with that at our deepest core, you know, we're not our history, we're not our memories, we're not our worries, we're not our physical body, but we're our awareness of awareness. And so we can either let things get locked up and stuck inside, or we can learn to let those difficult emotions kind of move through us. And so it's been super helpful uh, for me currently.
0: Amazing. So Joe, I want to just wrap up here with how can people, you know, buy the book? when is it available? can we can we buy it now I, i'm I'm so excited to read it myself. And then so maybe you can tell us about the book and then also how can people get in touch with you?
1: Yeah. So the book just dropped so you can buy it wherever you uh, buy books. So uh, it could be online. It could be your local bookstore. Uh, I'm sure they would appreciate that. Um, We actually in early November are hosting the Thursday is the new Friday mastermind group for anyone that buys 10 copies of it. Uh, And you'll just submit your receipt over at Thursday is the new Friday.com. We have a 40 page workbook that goes along with it. Um, That mastermind class to me is just so important because we're bringing people together that want to go beyond the book. Uh, Then we're going to be doing some hot seats for practical application. But then my favorite part is going to be that people are going to be connecting with each other. Uh, my goal is that you leave with six to 10 new friends that you want to follow up with, that you want to collaborate with, that you want to do joint ventures, be on each other's podcasts. Um, we're getting some really top level podcasters and influencers in there. And so it's super exciting to think about that community forming. Um, so you just buy 10 books wherever you want and submit your receipt at thursdayisthenewfriday.com. And then any, whether it's keynotes uh, or working with me, you can just go to Joe Sanok. That's S-A-N-O-K.com. All the information is on com.
0: Perfect. And then if we want to follow you social media, where do you hang out mostly on social media?
1: Yeah, I would say Instagram and LinkedIn are my two favorites. So you can just search for Joe Sanock on Instagram. We use our practice of the practice handle because I didn't want to keep up with multiple handles. So uh, that's (laughs) practice of the practice is the podcast that we have specifically for coaches and counselors starting private practices. And then we also have the Thursday is the new Friday podcast uh, that goes beyond the book with Angie Morgan. She's an awesome New York Times bestselling author that she and I have a bunch of conversations.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Joe. This is really exciting, inspiring. I think there, you are a change agent leading change here. And I think hopefully in 20 years we go, remember when we talked to Joe, everybody <laughs> has a four-week work week now. Yes. This is great. Super powerful. Thanks so much for being here today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.